everyone, and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we tell you about strange things that have happened in history. I'm Amelia Edwards, and with me, as ever, is my co-host, Barnaby King. Well, howdy there, y'all. Oh. We're in the past. Good Lord, Barnaby. <laughs> the first time that I managed to wrest this microphone away from you in three weeks, <laughs> and you decide to... Do a really odd accent. Yep, there we go. Okay, well, fine. well fine. Oh, it's, you know what? It's great having a rest from doing the research for this. Mm-hmm. Ah, three weeks on and now I get to relax. <laughs> Delightful. All mm. right, so today I've got a new little snippet of history for you. Mm, okay. And I think in this case it's definitely more of a snippet. I'm not doing a person for once. Ooh, nice. Mm. Yeah, so frequently we're doing people because yeah. well, I mean to be fair that's because that's most of human history <laughs> that's true usually history is about the people yeah um today though I'm going to be talking about some a particular thing that happened in world war one ah. which is a little bit unusual okay okay so I'm going to set the scene for you mm-hmm. at the beginning of world war one it was the sort of action part right. of World War One. This is when a lot of the deaths occurred. Oh, no. Um, I, I was about to do a thing about how, like, everyone was, like, action movie star <laughs> buff running in and, like, gloriously fighting. But no, they're dead now. No, okay. no, no, they're dead now. Okay, so oh, dear. at the beginning of World War One, yeah. the British Army was the largest volunteer army in the world. Damn. And it had 247,433 regular volunteers. Bloody hell. I know. Well, we had the empire, so Uh, we had a need for a large army. Uh, I see. How many of these volunteers were actually conscripted colonials? No, no, no. This is the (laughs) British army. Ah, okay. So in terms of the colonies, they had their own armies. And that will come into this in a moment. Oh, okay. So we've got this massive army. Yeah, let's just let's just take a moment to bask in the glories of British colonialism. My God, it was a great time, wasn't it? And we should be going back to those days. In fact, why do you not have a Union flag behind you right now? How do you know I don't? Because I'm looking at you. Our audience. No, the doesn't audience know. doesn't know. The audience doesn't know, but I'm looking at you, and I can see not one Union flag. Whereas behind me, there are at least nine. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it's actually quite clashing it is yes <laughs> i really shouldn't have sewn them together so haphazardly <laughs> and shouldn't have made them neon oh god could you imagine <laughs> all right well union rave nationalism <laughs> union flags and rave nationalism yeah. aside um at the beginning of the war mm-hmm. ninety thousand of the 240 odd thousand men got taken over to france right um then the rest of the army, because they soon realised it was going to take more yeah. than that. Uh, between August and November, 90,000 died. So 90,000 went over, and then later 90,000 died. Yes. Was it all the original 90,000? Well, this basically meant that the original British army had kind of been wiped out, as oh, far as yeah. they were concerned. Actually, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, so this is the situation. It's pretty dire. Yeah. Um, this is before everyone gets down into trenches and sits there for like three years. Right. Um, which is a really cruel way of describing World War One, and I apologise. I mean, but... yeah, but... I, so the alternative is they're just... 
Brave Tommies nobly marching towards the enemy gunfire. Well, I think these are pretty. These are pretty brave and noble guys, I guess. Oh yeah, but whole. I mean, it's it's like that thing from Blackadder where it's like the uh, the strategy is to have everyone standing in a line and moving slowly <laughs> towards the enemy. That was the strategy, yeah. though, for sure. Okay, so um, luckily for Britain, mm-hmm. as you've mentioned already, there's oh yeah, there's a lot of colonies out there, and. Uh. Britain actually had control of the second largest volunteer army in the world. Ah, okay. As well as the largest. Right. The second largest volunteer army in the world was the Indian army. Right. And this had 240,000 men in it in 1914. Pull your finger out, India. My God. I know. Where's that (laughs) missing extra 7,433 guys? So... They are brought across to the Western Front because they are really needed. Mm. And the first Indian troops arrived on the Western Front on the 26th of September, which is pretty speedy going because the war started on the 4th of August. Oh, yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Um, So this is one of those images that I think doesn't get shown, Mm -hmm. including in films like 1917, the film that you won't watch. (laughs) Because of the advertising. Because of the advertising, which said... (laughs) It says you must watch this film. And the moment I saw that in my head, it was just, don't tell me what to do. No. So So, 1917 has been criticised for the fact that it completely ignores any Indian presence in World War I at all. It's just brave Tommies. Uh, yeah, everyone's everyone's super white. Mm, super white, super well-spoken. Of course. <laughs> everyone's got that little thin moustache. Yes. Um, and we're all jolly brave going into our dogfights. Absolutely. Um, isn't dogfights in planes in World War Two? No, that's World War One. Is it? All right, fine. Yeah, I think so. You're probably right. But anyway. yes, it is in planes. Yes. That's the thing you don't know. The British Army was entirely uh, an air-based force. <laughs> The trenches thing is a myth. That's true. Uh, it, it it comes from it comes from the Latin trincare, meaning to fly around in a plane. <laughs> Which you know because you know Latin. Why would they have a word for that? They <laughs> <laughs> don't know what planes are. <laughs> oh, the Romans are clever people. They figured it wouldn't be coming. It would come in handy <laughs> later on, I guess. Because the Romans foretold the British. <laughs> well, they did. Have you seen the British Empire? It's very Roman. Well, yes, fair enough. Except less organised. Anyways, but less so, lead in the water pipe, so true. Indian soldiers actually fought at Ypres, Neuve Chapelle, the Somme, and Passchendaele. So, Damn. like the big battles, yeah. there was always an Indian presence. Mm. Um, Don't tell that to people like the Britain First crowd. I know, right? <laughs> they go on and on about like this era of Britain. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they, they don't seem to notice that, you know, not everyone was white. <laughs> it's it's really interesting when you start to get into this as well, because there's sometimes people say things like, oh, the right to vote is based on whether you can take part in wars or something. Really? I, yeah. Who says that? People who don't like women. Oh, right. But if that's their argument, then a large portion of India should have the vote yeah. in the UK if you base it off the number of... Indian soldiers. Mm, yeah. Uh, by the end of World War One, as a little side note, yeah. and this wasn't all on the Western Front, but by the end of World War One, um more than a million Indian soldiers had fought. Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. So we're thinking loads of Indian yeah. soldiers, like so many. <laughs> Fair enough. Um so ultimately 
There was a little bit of a problem with this, though, mm-hmm. because, as I've said, this was the fighting months of yeah. World War One, And a lot of people got injured. Mm, yeah, well, you would. Um, so at first... This thing about war, that, you can get a nasty scrape or two. Especially when you're shooting at each other across bare fields at this point, I guess. Mm. So at first the idea was maybe we can set up hospitals on the continent near the battlefields. Yeah. Like we did back in Crimea. Mm. But it soon became clear that there were just way too many wounded for this to be practical at all. Um, So actually it made more sense to ship wounded men back to England. Mm. So for those soldiers who had to be taken back to the UK, I think a lot of them went and stayed in their hometowns if they could, because then they could be near their families. I mean, yeah, that that makes sense. You probably at that point, you're injured. You just want to go home. Yeah, really. (laughs) Um, But for the Indian soldiers... Ah, they yeah. often like, generally didn't have family in the UK. Yeah, that makes sense. So the thing that made the most sense was to transport them to a seaside town where they could set up hospitals specifically for Indian soldiers. Okay. So whoever was organising this, and yeah. I couldn't find out who this was, but they're pretty hilarious, I think, in their way of thinking. Mm-hmm. They came up with a great idea. Okay. And they said to themselves, why don't we take them to Brighton? Hey, Brighton! Which is our nearest city we grew up to. Yay! Oh, that's wonderful. They can go around all the hipster places. They can stop in an artisanal bakery. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, as far as I can tell, Brighton at this time was still pretty, you know, cool. Yeah. Um, And also, it has a massive... Indian-looking That's building. That's true, yes, the pavilion. It'll make people feel at home, they thought to themselves. <laughs> wow, that's so weirdly patronising. I know, isn't it? <laughs> so Look went, at that, look at that building. Doesn't that remind you of home? Go on, get in there, you old sod. Yeah, so for people who aren't familiar with Brighton, back in the Georgian period, the Prince Regent, who later became George IV, was famous for being extravagant and decadent. Mm. And he started getting ill, presumably because he was eating too much or something. Yeah. Um, But he got it recommended to him that he should try some sea bathing. So he went to a newly popular resort, which was Brighton, which had previously been a little fishing town. Come to Brighton. (laughs) A city on the grove. (laughs) And he decided uh, that he liked it there so much that he was going to build himself a palace. Mm, yeah, and well, he would. being the most ridiculous, extravagant guy, Yeah. Um, and inspired by the East, which was a really mystical, magical place at the time, obviously. Of course. Um, he de- so exotic. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> he decided to build this palace that's inspired mostly by China, actually, but also a bit by India. Mm, Yeah. And when we say inspired by these ideas, we mean inspired by the tackiest, gaudiest stuff you can imagine, and then really westernized, and then make it all into one big white palace with loads of gold on the inside. Yeah, the thing is, like, you see it on the outside nowadays, and it's like... You you can tell, like, you know, it, it looks out of place, but it's not yeah. so bad. And then you go inside. <laughs> you go inside. There's <laughs> dragons everywhere. There's one room that's cursed yeah. because there are so many snakes in it. Um, <laughs> not real snakes. No. <laughs> Otherwise, I feel like they would have dealt with that by now. 
And here we have the snake room. We don't go in there. <laughs> we haven't done anything about it because, you know, budget cuts. Mm-hmm. After years under conservative government, we can't get the snakes out <laughs> of the pavilion. Like everything's got gold leaf on it. There are these Even massive, the snakes. <laughs> there are these massive chandeliers, like probably bigger than me. Yeah. That is, it's too much, mm. but it's also kind of wonderful. Oh, yeah. So anyway, they go, okay, so this looks vaguely Indian. <laughs> Let's put the Indian wounded from World War One here. And the Indian soldiers turn up and it's like, what the f*** is this place? Yeah, especially because from what I could find out, I think a lot of the Indian soldiers had originally been, you know, peasants mm. in small villages in the north part of India. Yeah. Um, but, you know... People's people's ideas about India at this time were just so mad and like exotic. Still in World War One, that they were like, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I think there are a lot of countries that people were just kind of like, oh, it's it's exotic and mm-hmm. mystical, and like they do things differently over there. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, the people look different. Wow. <laughs> I suspect that part of this, um, like part of the reason why this was a good place to make into a hospital, yeah. was because at the beginning of World War One, mm-hmm. um, people were a little bit worried that there might be a rebellion in India, um, basically because so many... Indians were getting wounded and killed in yeah. World War One, fighting for the British. There had already been the Indian mutiny. Well, yes, I was going to say. <laughs> Although that was actually before the British government took over India. Oh, right. That was okay. when they were in the East India Trading Company. Ah, right. Um, and that was the reason why the British government took over was because yeah. of the mutiny. Um, but, you know, there's, there's still, there's still <laughs> the, the a bit of The British government looks in this and is like, you know what this needs more of? More British involvement. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, okay, so they go, let's stick them here because mm. then it'll show how well we're treating yeah. these Indian people. And also it will encourage more people to sign up Yeah, because clearly we need the Indian soldiers because everyone's dying in World War One. We yes. just need to keep firing wave after wave of our own <laughs> men at the problem. Tis the British way. Tis the British way. <laughs> Which is bizarre because we've got so few people in comparison <laughs> to somewhere lot. like... No, we've got, like, population density-wise, we're, we're, we're pretty up there. Yeah, I guess. All right, fair enough. So, the Indian wounded were cared for at the pavilion, as yeah. well as at um, what had been the workhouse yeah. and the York Place School in Brighton uh, between 1914 and 1916. Hmm. And actually, like, I've ragged on this as being a really stupid thing to do, but... They really put a lot of thought into this. Okay. There was a lot of, um, like, it was an amazing feat to create this hospital in the Brighton Pavilion. Yeah. Um, because they converted it into a medical facility, which was completely up to date for World War One. Oh, wow. Within two weeks. What? That's crazy. Yeah. It was like a Nightingale Hospital of the past, but super speedy. Yeah. Because I, I was originally, I was going to make a joke where it's like, the Indian soldier turns up and is like, well, this is nice, but can I go to an actual hospital? But now it just sounds like, you know, no, it, an actual hospital. It, it was an actual hospital. So they set up 600 beds for patients. Nice. Um, they installed new plumbing and toilet facilities. So they had, you know, enough set out for everyone. Oh, that's cool. And they also included x-ray equipment. Ah. And they created two operating theatres. 
Okay, fair enough. They, yeah. they they pulled their finger out. Yeah, I mean, one of the operating theatres was in um, the Great Kitchen. Which... Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, you've got to be worried at that point. It's I like, mean, we can't, a little bit. We, we can't save him, but we can save a few chops, a little shank. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I mean, actually, the Great Kitchen is just it's a huge space if right. if you ever get to go and visit the Brighton Pavilion people who are listening mm-hmm. um, it is massive and it's one of those kitchens where now they've just taken out everything except like all the copper dishes on one right, wall yeah um, so I could see it being a really I mean, good yeah, place it, if you've but... just got like a huge open space then <laughs> yeah. yeah that that would make a lot of sense but you know you don't want to be like I need surgery I'm going to the kitchen yeah no, right <laughs> Especially because I'm sure that means a lot of amputations. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. You've you got to look very carefully about at the food that you're being served. <laughs> I recognise that arm. Mm. <laughs> well, actually... Wait, why would it be an arm? Why would there just be an arm in the... F- <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. Let's talk about the food for a moment. Okay. Okay, so... When we talk about the Indian soldiers, mm-hmm. we're obviously talking about people from a massive variety of different backgrounds. Yeah. Because the subcontinent of India is very big. Yes. And it encounters a lot of different, you know, traditions and cultures. Mm-hmm. So these were actually taken account of. Really? Yes. Good Lord. So um, to start off with, let's talk about religion, actually. Okay. So... Indian soldiers typically came from three religions. Yeah. They were Muslims, mm-hmm. Sikhs, and mm-hmm. Hindus. Right. And they made sure, the people who had organized this, made sure that this was catered for. So they started off, they built a tent in the grounds right. to be a gurdwara or a temple for Sikhs. Okay. And they also created another space on the eastern lawns ah. so that the Muslims yep. could pray to Mecca. Yeah, makes sense. Now, there's a lot in these religions about food. Mm -hmm. I don't know all of them at all. But here are the things that they did. They made sure, first of all, that Muslims and Hindus had separate water supplies. I don't know why that's important. And I have this suspicion that it comes down to a little bit of a thing from the British Empire days. Where there's an assumption that because people are different religions, they have to be kept so separate. Right. Um, But there might be a reason for it. Mm. I just... No, find it yeah, out. fair enough. They also set up nine separate kitchens in the grounds. Nice. And this was because... <laughs> because the main kitchen's being used as a surgery. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was so that food would be cooked by patients co-religionists ah. and also, a little more, more troublingly, their fellow cast members. Uh, mm. I mean, okay, that is troubling. But you know what? Aside from the implications of casteism. Um, it's kind of amazing that they put that much effort into it. Like, could you imagine the furore if that was to happen nowadays? Yeah. Like, how dare how, people how, come how over here and... <laughs> Demand being cooked separate food? This isn't what we fought World War One for. <laughs> Nigel Farage has an aneurysm next to Brighton Pavilion. Mm. But uh, the, this is... This is super woke. Like I, I know, like <laughs> comparatively speaking, and there's probably something problematic I in mean, here, almost like definitely. for sure. But I think the thing to the thing that comes out of it to me is that people were trying. They were making the effort. Yeah, and after, like that's the main thing, really. Like you know, you're going to get stuff wrong, but if you're making the effort, then good. That's yeah. that's what you should be doing. Um. So basically, they were making sure that everyone was being treated fairly and yeah. kindly and that everyone had their 
culture as far as people knew about it catered for um i think the idea that your food would be cooked by your co-religionist made a lot of sense yeah. in this regard because maybe this english chef could be given a list of things that hindus can and cannot eat but they might not understand like any particular deep yeah. points whereas if the chef is hindu then they'll know yeah i mean it will be second nature basically yeah exactly whereas you give it to an english person and they just they, they'll have a go they'll make approximate things mm. that's why you get like curry with swede and raisins <laughs> yeah these people are not eating their curry with swede and raisins yeah <laughs> um now sadly 18 men did die in the pavilion okay um which is quite small and that is like you said it as if it was like this tragically huge number that's pretty good yeah it, i mean it does seem like people were being taken proper yeah. care of once again arrangements were made according to their different ah, religions nice so muslims were taken to woking where there ah, was the birthplace of islam <laughs> <laughs> they went to the, the statue of the Martian from H.G. Wells mm-hmm. and they were all buried underneath it. Yeah. As it, as it says in their holy texts. Well, okay. So there's a reason they were taken to Woking. Okay. Woking is the site of the first mosque in Britain. Really? Yes. Oh, that's so cool. So this is the <laughs> Shah Jahan Mosque. Right. It was built in 1889. Oh, fair enough. Uh, this was by Hungarian-British Orientalist Gottlieb Wilhelm Leitner. The perfect person to build the first mosque in Britain. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, now, the reason why he built this was because he had already founded earlier the same decade... Uh, the Oriental Institute, right. which is in Woking. Okay. And apparently a reasonable number of Muslim students came to study there. Right. So he went, let's build a mosque. Yeah. And by the way, it is beautiful. Yeah? Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. I'll see if I can show you a picture. Oh, that is nice. I'll include that's... a picture of it on Twitter. Yeah, that's that's nice. It's tasteful. It's very Much tasteful. more tasteful than the pavilion. I will say that as well. <laughs> well, it's Victorian times by now. People yeah. have toned it down. Incidentally, mm-hmm. I love that you brought up War of the Worlds. Excellent. Um, because that mosque is mentioned in War of the Worlds. Is it? Very briefly, he talks about a mosque burning down. Oh, okay. I, I, I must admit, I don't remember that. Um, I love it. I love it. She Wells. I mm-hmm. love War of the Worlds. I'm going to have to go back to it then and have a look for that. That's so cool. But he wrote it like five years after the mosque was built, so mm. it must have been one of those like little nods to yeah, that makes that, a lot of sense. Things that only woking kids know. <laughs> <laughs> only '90s kids know this. Only woking kids know this. Martians burning down mosques. Yeah. <laughs> so Sikh and Hindu soldiers were cremated mm-hmm. in open air. Okay. Um, and this was on the South Downs near Patcham. Mm. And it's marked by the Chattery Memorial, which you can still go and visit today. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I'm assuming that's part of their religion and not just what was decided for them. <laughs> no, it is part of their religion. Um, now, this is actually something that becomes a little bit important because... Yeah. Um, up until 2010, outside cremations were illegal. Really? Yes. Now, they weren't illegal back in World War I because 
it hadn't actually been dealt with yet. Um, they became illegal in the 1930s and right. stayed illegal up to 2010 when Davinder Guy, who is a British Hindu, um, mm-hmm. basically challenged the rule because he fe- he feels that one ought to be um, buried, I guess, or disposed of in a method that most suits your religion and you can't do that if you're a hindu in the uk okay so what is outside cremation and why why was it so controversial as it were well what we're talking about is a pyre Ah, i see right and i think it's to do with pollutants basically Mm, um that makes sense cremation wasn't very common at all in the uk Mm. um up until the early 1900s, right at the at the outstart, yeah, um, and so well, there's always ass- been a bit of an issue with it. It was assumed that you know you would be wealthy enough to have your own tomb or mausoleum, and if you were poor, <laughs> you could just roll in the gutter and someone would sweep you into the Thames. No, it's to do with Christianity. Oh yeah, yes, because a lot of Christians used to hold the belief oh, that bodily resurrection, exactly, right. So yeah, you, you have can't... to be buried in one piece. <laughs> you can't come back as a pile of dust. No. <laughs> now, I okay, I went too far into the history of cremation because I had been told originally that when the um Hindus and Sikhs were cremated outside, yeah, um on the South Downs that this had been illegal. Okay. This led me to a weird story which I'm going to tell you because right? I just have to. In 1883, A Welshman called Dr. William Price, Mm -hmm. who was a healer, druid, and naturist, (laughs) fathered a child with his housekeeper. Oh, no. And he was 80 years old. Oh, I mean, grotty, but impressive. She was about 20. Oh, very grotty. Very grotty. Now, he had already formed a reputation as a flamboyant eccentric. He endorsed free love and vegetarianism, and he refused to treat smokers. Okay, right. Um, he used <laughs> I bet to... <laughs> the locals thought he was an absolute wanker. Well, he used to be seen wandering the hillsides naked yeah. when he was young. Um, and he used to, by the time he was 80, he was wearing a scarlet waistcoat, a fox skin headpiece, and used to parade through town carrying a blazing torch and a druidical crescent moon on a stick. God, you just... I mean, it's probably not a reason to move, but it's probably, <laughs> it's probably the start of a discussion. Yeah, you don't. You probably don't want to be near Dr. William Price. No. Uh, now... Tragically, Dr. William Price's very young child Mm -hmm. that was born as a result of this really grotty thing. Um, And by the way, who he called Iezu Greest um, died as an infant. Now, he wanted to cremate his son in the open air, being all eccentric and druidical. Um, And a furious crowd dragged the body from the flames, calling it a... a vicious act of blasphemy, and they rioted. Oh, they wow. nearly killed him in the process of this. So, I mean, it was probably just an excuse at that point. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So this led, according to this article I read it on, which mm-hmm. is on naturaldeath.org.uk, okay. um, this led to the legalisation of cremation right. of any kind oh. through the Cremation Act of 1902. Okay. So... 
I loved reading this because I was like, okay, that is mad. But also, um, imagine that cremation's only been legal in the country for 12 years. But this story is not entirely true because it says, a grateful though nervous woking crematorium finally fired up his burners, installed but never lit due to the ambiguity of the law and the age of burning our dead began in 1902. Right. Now... (laughs) <laughs> Woking crematorium, and I don't know why Woking is so awesome right now. <laughs> Woking is the happening place to be at the turn of the century. <laughs> I mean, if you want to do anything to do with Muslim culture or, or sci-fi, cremation apparently is the place. Yeah. Um, so Woking crematorium had been founded in 1878, and I right. find it very hard to believe that they had built a whole crematorium and not used it (laughs) for like 24 years they were like shit i really hope no one comes by to like investigate yeah (laughs) yeah so yeah so i think possibly this much is true that the first cremation took place after dr william price's trial but cremation cremation wasn't declared legal in 1902 mm. it was declared legal in 1884 yeah so to be fair they did start a, crema- yeah. a crematorium 5 years before it was legal yeah. which is kind of hilarious i mean ballsy move um how do you advertise that do you want to have your loved one illegally cremated <laughs> well apparently they they tested it beforehand um on on the bodies of animals like on the body of a horse (laughs) (laughs) they didn't cremate them they just roasted them (laughs) apparently it's fine to cremate animals because you're not worried about the whole body of the animal going to heaven i don't know no you you cremate the chicken just sort of lightly and and stuff it with some sage and lemon (laughs) and a bit of salt and pepper and it comes out afterwards and it's like well ready to be interred isn't that a michelin web look it is actually yes (laughs) (laughs) ah there's nothing new in this earth no okay so um like after this little departure basically i guess what i've been telling you about the brighton pavilion it's just like it's just a little snippet of Mm. something that happened in world war one and of a time when people did their best to be accepting of uh, people who were different to them there are all of these really lovely pictures that you can see online of um indian gentlemen who are recovering from their wounds um basically sitting out in the sunshine on the lawns of the brighton pavilion um chatting with locals all that kind of thing it must have been really bizarre i, I mean i suppose it's really quite a lovely image to be honest yeah i mean i think it's a nice story yeah. that happens in the middle of something that's obviously massive and tragic and to be honest as far as i can tell on the whole the indian army was not treated super well mm. elsewhere but at this point in time in this one particular place um, they were treated nicely yeah. and people tried to be accommodating and work everything out. You know what this this really tells me is that far-right groups know bugger all about history. They really know nothing, <laughs> do they? It's like, oh, yeah, no, people moving here, first up, it's quite likely that a number of their ancestors yeah. may have fought here. They might even have come to Brighton yeah. during the middle of the war to be treated. 
Oh my god! But of course now it's all. Of course they would. It's all the hipster liberal elite there now who who just want everything to be woke and. <laughs> yeah, oh absolutely. God. But I mean, it, it's it's it goes further back than that as well. Like I, I mentioned earlier about like population density and one of the arguments often used by sort of anti-immigration almost terrorist groups mm-hmm. are like oh, Britain is full we have no more room for people and I remember you telling me that same argument was used in the Elizabethan period it was when there was one million people in the whole country yeah so that was true <laughs> um back in the Elizabethan period um basically the Moors as in North African yeah. people had helped out with the Spanish Armada ah. um because they'd I think done several raids on Spain beforehand yeah. which it's slowed it down and prevented it from being as big as it could have been. Yeah, it makes sense. And in recognition of this, Queen Elizabeth had given the Moors the right to come and settle in England if they wanted right. to. Which did mean that for a while there were a reasonable number of Northern African people living in London. Mm. Um, but people felt that they didn't uh, manage to integrate oh into British society. I'm not kidding. No, I know you're not. It's 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 kind of funny, but kind of depressing. And they also thought that Britain was already too full. Um, so I think about somewhere between 30 and 50 years after they, the Moors were once again expelled from England. Yeah, I I kind of feel like now when when you get people like on Twitter and social media and that making these points, you kind of just want to argue back with them as though they're talking about the Moors in the Elizabethan period. <laughs> but how dare you? They helped us with the Spanish Armada, yeah, you know. Exactly. Don't you want to support our brave boys? Mm. <laughs> Maybe we should argue as though everyone's a soldier in World War One. <laughs> yeah. Because let's be honest, it was a huge number and variety of mm. Indian soldiers. Yeah. Like usually the main Indian soldiers we hear about are the Gurkhas. Yeah, that was the first thing I thought of when you mentioned India. Mm. And they were part of the Indian army. Mm. Um, but obviously the Gurkhas is a reasonably small ethnic group. Yeah. It's just that they're particularly entwined in the British Army to this day. Yeah. Um, So I think I'm going to finish up by just talking about a little bit of a sad note. Um, Just so that people are aware, over one million Indian soldiers served overseas during Mm -hmm. the war. Even more than that were also fighting um, along India's borders because like Afghanistan people were trying to sort of take advantage of a weakened India. And... Of those, at least 74,187 Indian soldiers lost their lives fighting Damn. in World War I. Um, they moved from the Western Front in 1915 mm-hmm. um, because they were more needed in places like Turkey. Right, yeah. Um, which is the reason why in 1916, Brighton Pavilion stopped being an Indian uh, hospital okay. and instead changed because it still had all of its yeah. top-notch medical facilities to become specifically for uh, limbless soldiers. Oh, wow. So not completely limbless, but yeah, no, no, uh, for I, soldiers I who yeah. had lost a limb went there, um, which was actually a really interesting part of their time. Um, men who were there were receiving a lot of training so that as soon as they were dispatched from the army officially they had the ability to get jobs which mm. they couldn't have got even before losing a limb in world war one which is absolutely mad but um it does mean that 
Brighton Pavilion kept on going in terms of being that hospital. Yeah. Um, it's a real shame that the prices in the pubs around there are quite expensive because otherwise you could get <laughs> legless to this day. Hey! Is that in poor taste? Um, I don't know. We've been talking about a lot of people whose religions involve not drinking alcohol as well. Well, yeah. And also, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> On the 26th of October, 1921... A mm-hmm. memorial to Brighton's Indian hospitals was unveiled by the Maharaja of Patiala, I think. Okay. Um, which you have seen. Oh, okay. Uh, this is the Indian Gate. Oh, yeah. Didn't you always think that that was an original part of the I did, yeah. Brighton Pavilion? It's not. Hi, that's, that's from so the cool. 1920s. Oh, nice. So um, the Indian Gate stands at the southern entrance to the pavilion, and it's kind of like the perfect entrance to the yeah. pavilion. It matches it, it, like it matches this kind of like onion-shaped dome yeah. thing that's going on with the whole of the pavilion. It really does just look like part of the original work. Yeah, but it's from the 1920s, that's and crazy. it's a little nod to the citizens of Brighton for being pretty upstanding during oh, World nice. War One. Ah, oh, that's cute. Thank you so much for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4. And if you have any suggestions for episodes you'd like us to do, you can email us at ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you as always to Kevin McLeod for our theme song Anachronist, as well as any other music that we've used in this episode. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and accept other cultures. Bye!